Well, good to see you all today. Beautiful fall day. Still got a little bit of color on the trees, but that'll soon be gone. Holidays require family gatherings. And it's a good thing, I guess, because otherwise we'd never see our family. We'd never slow down enough to pull together, come together, and we had sort of a family gathering. You have to kind of do it in pieces because, you know, uh, family histories sort of fall to pieces uh, through the years, and so you kind of have to catch as catch can when it comes to holidays. Always a challenge. But anyway, yesterday we had one such of these gatherings, and I looked around and noticed, and in fact, I asked it out loud and just got kind of this silence after I asked it. And I said, why is it that the kids all look older, but we never change? <laughs> the kids were the ones that looked the most odd about that. Everyone else is going, yeah. <laughs> I've noticed that when, as we do get older, though, there's three things that we tend to lose. First, we lose our eyesight. That's the first thing that goes. Second, the memory goes. And third, (laughs) I'm kidding. We wish, though, that we could forget some memories sometimes. And again, family gatherings are those times that they tend to surface. So just imagine with me for a moment. Just picture with me that you have a child. Just one. Just one child, and even even having the child was a challenge, meaning even being able to have a child. But you did, and he was a blessing of God, so much so that you named him Nathaniel, which means given of God. Precious little boy. And you, you finally get Nathaniel home, and every three hours you are getting up and feeding him and taking care of every need in his screaming little life. Months and months of this, you keep doing it, not missing one feeding, not missing one diaper change, not missing any need that he has because he's your son, and he is a gift from God. And you do it with joy, even though you are exhausted. Uh, For some of us, we don't have to imagine this experience. We experienced it. You still keep doing it. And as little Nathaniel gets older and older, more and more needs tend to pile on. He goes to, it seems like, three or four birthday parties every weekend, and you've got to buy a gift for Nathaniel to take. His clothes begin to cost more than your clothes, and he outgrows them, you know, every, every year. You teach him to walk, and you hold his hands while he walks, and uh, you get excited about you know, his growing up and becoming more and more of a, of a little boy and a young man. He, uh, he goes on his first car date, and you, you, you wait up in fear that the, the phone's going to ring and the police are going to say this or that. Um, and finally, little Nathaniel is no longer little, and he goes off to college to the liberal state university and you have prayed and prayed and you're standing there on the campus and he's crying and you're crying and um and he says you know mom dad i'm, I'm afraid 
And so you give him a hug, you let him know that you'll be praying for him, and, and off he walks, and he's gone. Your only child. So not only are you dealing with the, the challenge of, of um, your first child going off to college, but you're also dealing with the fact that now you're, em- you're an empty nester. Um, it took Kathy and I about 10 minutes to get used to the empty nest. <laughs> but that first child leaving home, that's hard. So Christmas break comes, Nathaniel comes back, and um, you want to find out, you know, how was the semester? How are things? How did things go? And so you're talking with him, and you say, hey, while we talk, why don't you come help me do the dishes? And he says, dishes? He says, look, Dad, so I want you to know something. Let's just get something straight. I am my own man now. And there's nothing that you're going to tell me that, um, that's going to run my life. And he turns on his heel, he walks out the door, and you hear him driving down the street. And you're just kind of left in the silence and the awkwardness of that situation. And late that night, as you're waiting up, not wondering or not knowing if he's even going to come back, you pull out an old family album, and you leaf through the pages, you dust off the photos, and you remember all the feedings, all the diapers, all the changing of the bed, all the love, all the everything that you gave, all those years. And now you're left wondering if he's even going to come back after making such a statement. That kind of pain cuts deep. And for the pain of a prodigal child, I don't know that there could be a greater pain in life. It is... It is, uh, it is cutting. And as we think about our relationship with God, I hope that you're able to get into the emotion a little bit of what I described of how a parent of a prodigal feels because this is how our Heavenly Father feels in our lives when we decide that we're not going to walk with Him. But it ends well. Look with me, if you would, at the book of Hosea. Hosea. We're continuing a series on the, um, where we take just a simple one lesson from every book of the Bible, and we are now in the section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets. This is not a section of the scriptures that we um, are in very much. Because honestly, it's not great news. It's, it's hard to hear these words from God. Because a lot of times what the Lord is doing in these minor prophets is challenging his people to come back to him. The minor prophets, there are 12 of them. And the last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are after the, the return to the land. So they're what we call post-exile or post-exilic prophets. The, so, but the nine, the first nine of those twelve, are all before the exile, and basically they have a, a single message, and that is, don't go into exile. If you'll simply repent, God will let you stay in the land. God will bless you. God will turn things around for you. You don't have to be invaded and ruined by a foreign nation or nations. And of course, as we know, as we've gone through this series, we've sort of had a, a mini history of Israel as well, 
And this time in the history of Israel, the nation is divided. There's a northern kingdom, which is called Israel. There's a southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And most of these minor prophets, seven of them, are written to the southern kingdom. But two are written to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was godless. It didn't have any good kings. It was a, a hard audience to, to preach to. And Hosea is one of the two. You can remember uh, which prophets they are because they spell the word ha, H-A, ha, northern kingdom, ha, H-A, Hosea and Amos. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom, and it, he had an audience that was unwilling to hear the message of God. Usually when you think of the book of Hosea, you think of the Hosea's marriage to um, an unfaithful wife named Gomer. Gomer typically is not, you don't hear a lot of women named Gomer today. <laughs> you hear the word Gomer and you think of Jim Neighbors and, and uh, that sitcom that you just never understood why you watched, but you just always wanted to watch it. Gomer Pyle, USMC, great. But um, we're not going to talk so much about Hosea and Gomer, uh, it would be worthy to do that, but that covers a number of chapters. The same message, though, is put in one chapter, and that is chapter 11. So Hosea 11 changes from the metaphor of a husband and an unfaithful wife, which of course represents God and unfaithful Israel. The metaphor changes from a husband and a wife to the metaphor of a father and a wayward son. And that's what we see in Hosea chapter 11. Well, let's look at verse 1 at how the father describes his relationship with Israel. Hosea 11.1. 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. God takes us back to the photo album. He takes us back to Israel's birthday as a nation. And when the nation was enslaved in Egypt, the book of Exodus, God says to Pharaoh, uh, he says, my son, my firstborn, and he refers to Israel as his son. So when he says here, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Uh, because of my great love for my son, I called him out of slavery. And um, it says that God called him, and then it says that God, verse 1, and then God, verse 2, the more they called them. And they, you may have a, a reference in your margin that says that it means God's prophets. So not only did God call his son out of Egypt, as it were, on, the, on his birthday, the day of his birth, but also God continued to call through the prophets because Israel was a wandering son. Israel was a rebellious son. And the irony is the more God's prophets called, verse 2, the more Israel went away from God's prophets. They continued to sacrifice to the Baals or to the false gods. Um, in other words, God they continued to return back to the very thing that God had delivered them from in Egypt. And boy, that's hard, because our lives are like that. We will get delivered from something. God will deliver us from a life of sin 
or he'll, he'll uh, bring us to a certain place in our Christian life where we have learned hard lessons because we've made bad choices, and we, we rejoice in God's grace and God's deliverance, and then we just tend to wander right back into the old patterns. And that is exactly what Israel did. They returned to the very things that God had delivered them from. That's why God says here in verse 3, he says, Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. Ephraim is mentioned here in verse 3. When you see the word Ephraim throughout the prophets or the minor prophets, it's usually just a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. Ephraim was the dominant tribe of the north, and so often he's just referred to as Ephraim. And it makes it more personal here. We're not just talking about a nation of people, but now we're actually given, the son is actually given a name, Ephraim. And, look, and the picture of it is just like a father. I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms. You can picture God holding the hands of this infant nation and sort of walking backwards and teaching, teaching that child how to walk by holding, holding the, the hands of, of the child. And the emphasis there in the original language is very strong. I tried to emphasize it as we read it. I took them in my arms. I taught Ephraim to walk. They keep sacrificing to the Baals, and yet I'm the one that did all the work. I changed the diapers. You know, I changed the bed sheets. I fed them. I love them. And yet they're giving the credit to these false gods. There's a principle, a couple of principles that Hosea 11 is going to teach us that don't just relate to Israel and, you know, before the exile, but they are timeless truths that relate to our lives today. And here's the first one God's children often take for granted God's love. God's children often take for granted God's love. And we do that. It's real, tip, it's real tempting to immediately have another application or be thinking of that, that family member that, that you are about to go see that somehow walked the aisle and professed faith in Christ, but they don't, they're not really walking with Christ. It's always easier to apply the Bible to somebody else who really needs it. But for just a moment, let's leave everybody else out of the picture and just think about your personal walk with God, and I'll think about mine. And let me say this principle again. God's children often take for granted God's love. We do. And it's, it's helpful to have a time that basically forces us to think about God's love so that we don't take it for granted. For us as Christians, it's not just Thanksgiving, but it's communion. You know, when we have the Lord's Supper, we are told to do this in remembrance of Him, in remembrance of His death on our behalf. Keep your place here in Hosea, if you would, and turn to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And let's see how the Apostle Paul said, said the same principle in a different way. 1 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul is writing to the backslidden Christians in the town of Corinth. Corinth was a town that um, had so much, so many, so many uh, parallels to our current culture. 
the immorality, the lack of devotion to the true God. And many people in Corinth got saved, and then they struggled with walking with Christ. Well, in this particular context in 1 Corinthians 4, they are boasting because they are following a strong leader. Some say, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Paul. Some say, well, I follow Christ. And Paul is writing to them, and he look what he says starting in verse 7. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Who regards you as superior? Look at these questions. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have already become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. Paul is dripping with sarcasm here when he says that they're rich, but the question that he asks them is a great question. Think about everything that you have in your life, because everything has been received. Even the family that you were born into, even the ability to get the education that got you that great job, even the friends that God sovereignly, coincidentally brought into your life, it's all been handed to you. Even the ability to do hard work and to earn a wage that gets you a certain level or standard of living is a gift from God. Everything we have, our family, our job, our church, not to mention our salvation. To whom do we ultimately give credit? We give it to God. Because, you see, we can, we can catch ourselves sort of relegating giving thanks to a Thursday in November. And we don't do it on a regular basis. We cha we're, we're challenged to do that. Remember last time we looked in our series here in Daniel, part of what Daniel did three times a day was give thanks. Busy Daniel set aside time three times a day to pray and give thanks. It was a regular part of his Christian life, or his life. He wasn't a Christian, but he was a believer. And it can be a regular part of our life. And it needs to be because God's children often take for granted God's love. Now, turn back to Hosea 11. And on your way back, you'll remember that Paul also wrote in Romans, I think it was chapter 2, where he says that God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. His kindness leads us to repentance. His patience with us as his children draws us back because of his love. I don't know of anybody that is motivated to, long term, to love and serve God because they're afraid of him. The heart isn't there. The actions might be, but the heart's not there. Our heart wants to love and serve God out of gratitude. When we get to the place in our lives where we realize God did not have to send Jesus to die for our sin. God's only obligation regarding our sin was to judge it. But his grace, so that's his justice, but his grace is also part of his character. And in his grace, he, he, he provided a way. If God had, had reached out and made a way to just save one person out of the billions ever born, it would have been a testimony to his amazing grace. But in his amazing grace, he has provided a way not just for one, but for everyone to be forgiven 
if they will but accept his gift of Jesus Christ. That is amazing. And that is worthy of our gratitude and motivation to love him. So, out of Egypt I called my son. In other words, God's grace started the whole ball rolling with Israel. But if God's kindness won't lead them to repent, perhaps God's discipline will. And this is what he says now in Hosea 11, verse 5. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king, because they refused to return to me. If you have a new international version, I think it does a little better job of translating the sense of this. Let me read what the New International Version says. It says, Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? In other words, what God means by returning to Egypt was returning to slavery, except it's not going to be the Egyptians this time, it's going to be the Assyrians. God's basically saying, You want idols? I'll give you idols. I'll let you be carried off into Assyria. And you can have all the idolatry you want, and you'll learn the hard way. So often, that's what, a, that's what a good parent does. First of all, a good parent will say, here's the way it's going to be. And then if we choose to not follow what our father or mother said, well, then we learn by experience what we refuse to learn by instruction. And sometimes experience is a wonderful substitute teacher. It can be very effective. And incidentally, it was for for Israel. Israel, up until the exile, struggled with idolatry, but you never see Israel struggle with idolatry after the exile. They struggle with hypocrisy, but never idolatry. Well, look at how um, this time of discipline is described. Keep reading now in verse 6. It says, the sword will whirl against their cities and will demolish their gate bars and consume them because of their counsels. So my people are bent on turning from me, though they, meaning the prophets, call them to the one on high. None at all exalts him. Again, God's prophets call, but the people don't respond. I heard a story that I just thought was great. It's about this lady. She was getting her Thanksgiving meal ready. And she hears a knock on the door, and so she goes, opens the door, and there's kind of a disheveled-looking man standing there, you know, sort of hat in hand, and says, uh, you know, I, I wonder if you have any kind of odd job that I can do to, you know, just to try to, to earn a little money. And she says, well, I actually do. I said, she said, I've got a porch out back that I'd, needs painting. There's a couple of gallons of green paint back there, a brush. I'd love for you to go out and paint the porch. And uh, he says, well, I'm actually a very good painter. I, I'd be glad to do that. She, she says, well, I'll, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. And so she lets him go. She goes back to cooking. And a couple hours later, there's another knock on the door. She opens the door, and he's got paint you know, on him. You can tell he's been working. And uh, she says, well, how'd it go? He says, oh, I'm all done. He says, but lady, i got to tell you one thing. Uh, that's not a Porsche out back. That's a Mercedes. <laughs> that is not what you call a happy Thanksgiving. 
<laughs> you know, I heard that story and I thought, where was the breakdown? Was the breakdown in the communication of porch or was it in the reception, the hearing of it when, when he heard Porsche? I don't know, but the great thing is when it comes to our relationship with God, the breakdown is always on our receiving end. We always hear uh, when there's something, when there's a miscommunication, it's not because Jesus hasn't communicated perfectly or the word of God is somehow not relevant for our age any longer. It's because we've filtered it somehow and we are, have, uh, we've changed the meaning from porch to Porsche. God's prophets didn't stutter, but God's people, God's people didn't receive it. Even though God's dis God disciplines his wayward children, he always does it, though, from a heart of love. Look at verse 8. Just look at the emotion that's welled up in these verses. God asks, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? These are two uh, cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. How can I destroy you like that? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am a God. I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. I love this because it reminds us that God's discipline in our lives is not a reaction of anger. It's a decision of love. A lot of times as parents, whenever we disciplined, we'd let it get to the boiling point and we would react in anger. We would discipline in anger from our frustration to give us relief as opposed to always disciplining from a heart of love. God never does that. God never says, all right, that is it. I have had it. It's always measured. There's always a purpose. And the goal always, always, always is restoration. I was talking to a few guys after class several weeks ago, and we were talking about the difference between God's punishment and God's discipline. And it's an important distinction to understand. Punishment, if we can define the terms, you might say, well, it's sort of semantics. Well, let's define the semantics or at least God's heart behind it. That discipline, uh, uh, punishment has as its goal the pain, the payback, the, the justice that comes along with doing something wrong. That's punishment. Discipline, on the other hand, has the goal of restoration. The goal of introducing pain because of something that's done wrong has the motivation of, of motivating somebody to come back to repentance. This is why, incidentally, when church discipline occurs, and boy, so seldom does it occur any longer, and yet it's right there in the scripture. When church discipline occurs, the goal of church discipline is always repentance. The goal is always to encourage a believer to come back and to walk with Christ. It's never to just oust them and let them go to another church and just start over. The goal is to, to bring them back and to restore them. It's that way with any of our relationships. The goal is restoration, and God loves us so much that he will do that. Here's the second principle 
The first one we said is that God's children often take for granted God's love. And here's the second one. God never gives up on the problem child. God never gives up on the problem child. And incidentally, that's you. And that's me. We are God's problem children. Now, it's all, you know, it's sort of relative, as it were. You know, my little sin versus your big sin, your big sin versus my little sin. But the reality is we're all God's problem children, and he never gives up on us. It's like what he asks in verse 8, how can I give up on you, O Ephraim? The, question, the answer is I can't, because I am a God who has made covenants with you, unconditional promises. You know, if a friend betrays you, and you and decides, and you have a falling out with a friend. A lot of times, how do we react to that? We just think, "Good riddance." You know, there's plenty of other people I can be friends with if you're going to act that way. But a child, we don't think that way with children. With our children, it's just heartbreak, and it's a longing for them to repent. And there's a desire, not a desire to say, "You're done." But even, even when we do put up barriers, there's always that passion, there's always that rope, that string, that life preserver that goes out to the child wanting them to come back to God, to come back to Christ, to let their relationship be restored. This is how the Lord is with us. He never gives up on the problem child. How can God accept Israel without also condoning Israel's sin? That's a challenge, not only for the Lord, it's a challenge for us when we have kids who sin. You know, how do you love your child without expressing any kind of approval for their sin? Well, Hosea doesn't explain this apparent theological dilemma, but he does share the heart of God that wants to deal with it, that wants to let there be justice, but also let there be love. How has that ever worked out? It was worked out on the cross. On the cross of Jesus Christ, we see a wonderful, the two parts of God's character, as it were, with our sin, worked out in a beautiful way, that God's justice is fully met, that all of our sin is paid for completely as Jesus becomes sin on our behalf, and our sin is paid for. Justice is fully carried out. At the same time, God's love is fully carried out. But because of what Jesus did for us, God's love demonstrates that we can have forgiveness. How can, a, how can a God deal with sin and how can a God be a God of love at the same time? The cross is the way that happens. And it's the way it successfully happens in our lives as well. Well, once again, keep your finger in Hosea and turn, if you would, to Matthew. Just one more turn here. Matthew chapter 2, because Hosea 11 is history, but it's also prophecy. Matthew relates the Old Testament history to prophecy regarding the early years of Jesus. Amazing. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but remember this, the whole story of Matthew chapter 2 where God tells Joseph, Jesus' uh, stepfather, as it were, um, you know, through dreams, he 
communicates to Joseph, you need to go here, you need to go there, you need to move, you need to watch out, you need to protect. And Joseph follows. And that's exactly what we have here in Matthew 2. Look down at verse 13. The Magi had just left, and historically, if you look at some verses, put them together, Jesus is a couple of years old. They are now in a house in Bethlehem, not just the stable out back. The, the Magi have just left, have left them all, the, all these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, just in time for a trip to Egypt. Look at verse 13. Now when they, the Magi, had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. It's quoting Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. Earlier this year, I went to Egypt and had the privilege of doing some filming down there and seeing some great sites related, related to the, the scriptures and the Old Testament, the Exodus, and Mount Sinai. It was great. Just all, all things Egyptian and scriptural. And one of them was in Cairo. We don't know where Joseph, Mary, and Jesus stayed when they went to um, Egypt. The scriptures don't tell us, and history gives us some tradition, though, that is as old as the fourth century, which is only like 300 years after Jesus, which means it very could well be accurate. We don't know for sure, but it could be accurate. There are a lot of places, even in Israel, that have a tradition that's only 300 years old, and we're, we're pretty confident this is exactly where it happened, and, and we can be. So in Cairo, though, there is a church called the Abu Sara Church, and it is a church that is basically over a cave. It's, it's, it's the oldest church in Egypt, and it relates to where tradition says the Holy Family spent some time, not all their time, but some time when they were in Egypt. Don't know if it's true, but it is a very old tradition, and it very well could be that this is where, where they fled to a Jewish community there in Egypt. And God's purposes for these moves, clearly, were to protect Christ. But Matthew also notes, look there at verse 3, uh, verse 15. It says, This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This fulfilled Scripture. Now, it takes the Holy Spirit to inspire this kind of fulfillment, because I don't know that anybody would have looked at Hosea 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I've called my son, and think, ah, that relates to the Messiah coming out of Egypt. Nobody would put that together if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit inspiring that. And I say that to say the prophecy seems a little murky in Hosea, but it's not until Matthew relate, relates this that we go, oh, okay. I can see how that would connect, but at the time, there's no connection. And even when Joseph heard it, there was probably not a connection, which brings it into our lives. Because so often when God leads us, God will lead us through Scripture, as with Joseph. I don't know if you notice, but each time that Joseph is, um, is directed, there is a connection to a Scripture fulfilled. 
the, the Bible is involved every time. God doesn't just lead willy-nilly through visions and dreams, but, but those always connect. Somehow that's going to connect and certainly not contradict with the Bible. And in our lives, his leading isn't always clear, but we can look back like Joseph could in years to come, and we can see God's clear leading and understand the reasons why that he led the way that he led. That's the way it was with Joseph. That's the way it is with us as well. And often, very often, we don't understand the reasons why God leads us the way we do, and we don't have to. I think God gets more glory in our lives when we walk in the dark because we walk trusting him. If we, if we walked simply by God shows us the whole path of our lives, the truth is we'd never take the first step. We think, Lord, I ain't going that way. If that's what's going to happen in the next five years, no thanks. But he leads us in the dark because it is a walk of faith every day. And as we deal with that struggle that we can't see coming in five years, but when it comes, somehow he's prepared us for it. Somehow he's brought the people along beside us. Somehow he brings us to the word of God and helps us learn how to grow in our walk with him. And then as we look back, we can see how God led us all the way. Looking back is clear. Looking forward is foggy. So God never gives us all we need to understand, but he always gives us what we need to obey. Well, one more time, look back to Hosea 11. And on your way back, I don't know if you ever heard the story about Brad Pitt, the actor, but grew up in a Baptist church up in Oklahoma and then wandered from the faith, so much so that for many, many years, he said that he was, first he said he was agnostic, then he says he's an atheist. Interesting now, if you read uh, some of the interviews about him, he sort of sounds like he's coming back around spiritually. We'll see. But at least years ago, I read an interview that he did in which he said these words, and I just found them fascinating, about religion. He said, quote, I would call it oppression because it stifles any kind of personal individual freedom. I dealt with a lot of that. And then he makes a comment about the story of the prodigal son. He says, this is a story that says in, in which you, if you try to go out and find your own voice and find what works for you and what makes sense for you, then you're going to be destroyed and you will be humbled and you will not be alive again until you come back to the Father's ways. In reality, the story of the prodigal son is the story that we see here in Hosea 11, not only in the book of Luke, but it's God's, God's dealing with each of us is the story of the prodigal son. It's God's dealing with Brad Pitt. It's with all of us. And it's not the story of a father waiting to clobber his prodigal son, but of a father with arms open waiting for the son to come back to the life that is truly life. Uh, I read a story about Mortimer Adler, great uh, literary critic of yesteryear. But Mortimer Adler was at a discussion group one time, and he had a bit of a temper. And uh, the host, they were at this house and uh, in the living room or something. But anyway, Mortimer Adler, he gets mad, gets up, leaves, slams the door behind him. And there's sort of the tension in the room, you know, from... You know that feeling when somebody leaves and there's a lot, been a lot of tension in the room. Finally, someone breaks the silence and said, well, oh, he's gone. 
And the host said, no, he's not. He just walked into my closet. (laughs) Oh, that is so good. Because it is so picturesque of what happens when we leave God. We discover that apart from him is not the freedom we thought, but rather we are confined to ourselves. And it's not until we humble ourselves that we're ever going to get out of that closet. How long did Adler stay in there before he had to walk back out into the group of people? Can somebody tell me where the real front door is? That takes humility. And for some of us, we will stay in that closet for years. Because it's just too hard to come out. It's too hard to come out and humble ourselves before God. So we'll stay in that closet with ourselves and nobody else and go nowhere. When Israel finally returns to the Lord, it's a day that we have yet still to see, we will see the benefit of God not giving up on his problem child. Hosea 11, look at the, what should be the last two verses of the chapter. chapter. Verse 12 is really in the Hebrew, the beginning of chapter 12. So 10 and 11 are really the last two verses, should be, of Hosea 11. Verse 10, they will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in their houses, declares the Lord. This looks to the future kingdom of God when Jesus Christ is ruling on this earth for 1,000 years. And the lion, God will roar like a lion, and it says his sons are going to come trembling from the rest. He's going to bring back his people Israel to the land. And I love that he includes like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria. From places of slavery and exile, God's going to bring them back into the land and settle them in their very own place. So often we will filter the scripture through the grid of our emotions. We'll say, you know, here's what the prodigal son means. When in reality, we need to do it the other way around. We need to filter our emotions through the grid of scripture. To to put scripture over our emotions rather than our emotions over scripture. We've all done things that we regret. All of us. Some are things that if we will give them an inch of rain will still haunt us at night if we don't bring those things under the grace of God real quick. We've all done those things that we deeply regret. And I think there's also times that we wonder, you know, have I I crossed that line? Have I been like an Israel that just continues to go back to idols? Have I continued to do something wrong and it's just, God's just not going to accept me? When we wonder when we get to heaven, is God going to have, are we going to have a big surprise? Like God's going to say, you're out. Well, I think the reality is that we're all in for a big surprise, all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus. And that big surprise is that grace is greater than all our sins. It really is. And it has to be, because our sins are so great, but God never gives up 
on the problem child. You can't outsend the grace of God. We can't think of, of God on our terms. Um, God is like that parent that never gives up on his child, always wanting the child to come back, looking at a heart of grace. So Hosea, the wonderful picture of God's love, God's reaching out not only to his problem child Israel, but it is a timeless truth that Jesus used in the story of the prodigal son that also reaches into our lives today. Pray with me. Thank you, our Father, for being our Father, for being a God who so graciously continues to reach out to us even though we just want to stay in that closet. Thank you for your great love shown to us on the cross of Jesus Christ where justice and love were perfectly balanced, where the punishment for our sin was put on your beloved son, the one that you called out of Egypt, and that you have granted and extended that grace to each one of us if we will but believe, if we will but return to the Father whose arms are outstretched, not to whip us, but to embrace us. And Father, we pray for any who are in this room today feeling like a prodigal, feeling like they have gone too far and that your grace simply won't reach them. Help them step out of that closet in humility and to embrace the grace that is 100% theirs if they will but return to the Father. And, and Lord, as we, um, as we meet family and we are around those who need to see the grace of God this, uh, this coming week, we pray that you would help us to be a demonstration of that grace of love and to be the arms of the Father and to be a demonstration of the great grace that we ourselves are recipients of. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.